Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Samantha White. I am an assistant professor of sports studies at Manhattanville College. I study childhood youth sports and health, which is why I was so excited to be able to sit down with Kathleen. Kathleen, I'm going to hand it over to you so you can introduce yourself. Thanks so much. I'm an assistant professor of public health at Muhlenberg College, uh, and I recently published a book called No Game for Boys to Play. Uh, it's a history of debates over youth tackle football, and I'm really, really excited to get a chance to talk about it with you, Sam. Great, thanks. So let's jump into our conversation for today. So tell us about the intellectual journey or inspiration that led you to write No Games for Boys to Play. Oh boy, I'm going to try to make this not super long, but <laughs> it's a long journey. Um, I would say the origins of the journey were actually all the way back in high school. I tore my ACL and my MCL and my meniscus, which are all parts of your knee, in one big knee injury playing soccer. And by the time I went on to do a master's in public health and epidemiology, I knew a lot of friends and classmates, teammates, just other young people who'd also had pretty significant sports injuries or you know, health issues related to their youth sports experience. So I was really motivated to study um, youth sports as a public health issue. And I originally wanted to study bone and joint injuries because that's what I'd experienced. I just kind of wanted to learn more about other people who'd experienced my injury. But it turned out um, there wasn't anybody who could advise my master's thesis who had that kind of knowledge, but there was a neurologist who just started an organization studying sports and neurology who was able to advise me. And so that kind of led me more towards brain injury and brain health and sports. And when I started studying the brain in sports, I just got fascinated because I thought this is you know, such a precious part of our bodies, our identity, who we are. With my knee injury, I could have a knee replacement, but you don't have like a brain replacement surgery. It's a lot harder to treat brain injuries. So it makes the motivation to prevent them even stronger. And we have a lot of sports with a pretty significant brain injury risk in the US and football is definitely foremost among those. So I started studying injuries and began to realize I can't fully understand the epidemiology or the public health approach to injuries without understanding the social and cultural context around these injuries. And that's actually kind of what led me ultimately to history and ethics, was I felt like I couldn't fully do my job as a public health professor without also understanding the historical and social context. All of that led me to ultimately do a PhD in the history and ethics of public health. And when I had to choose a topic for my dissertation and then ultimately which became the book, I, I had sort of explored hockey, I'd explored other sports, but I just kept coming back to football because so many young kids, mostly boys, play football in the US. It has such a powerful cultural and historical meaning in this country. And I felt, well, if I'm gonna study something related to public health and brain injuries and youth sports and 
make a big book project out of it. That's what I just kept coming back to. That's such a fascinating trajectory, and especially thinking about the, the ways that injury tends to shape our even our personal lives, our scholarly lives. Um, for example, for me, I, in my first year of my PhD uh, studies and childhood studies, I actually got a concussion playing soccer. Um, and it was a pretty bad concussion too, but it also started me on the path to really thinking about um, like health and youth and sport too. Um, so really interesting ways that these instances really do shape our, our scholarly interests. That's a really great segue also to my next question. Your book intersects with the history of public health, the history of sport, and the history of childhood and youth. Tell us something about the contribution that your book, No Game for Boys to Play, makes to these fields. Yeah, well, starting with history of public health, I think a really interesting part of the history of public health is when do you even start to think about something as a public health issue? And I would say injuries are relatively new to the scene. Public health perhaps unsurprisingly, got most of its origins when it comes to infectious disease. And then subsequently, there started to be more public health research on chronic illness such as cancer or diabetes, other kinds of longer term illness. But injury for a really long time was seen as kind of random or unpredictable. As an act of God, it was sometimes described. And that's sort of the antithesis of public health. Public health you assume that the health issue is predictable and it has patterns and you can study those patterns. And so a really important historical question in many avenues of public health is when did this even become considered a public health issue as compared to some other domain? And for me, I was really interested in trying to understand that about football. When did we go from seeing an injury in football as more of an individual issue or an unfortunate accident to this is a public health issue. An entire community or population could be affected by this. Um, we want to systematically study it, try to systematically prevent this kind of injury. So I think that's an important part of what the book tries to do is to try to uncover how did health kind of enter into this arena. And then in terms of other areas of history where this might make a contribution, I also do think it's important for the history of sport to understand youth sports. And I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. <laughs> I'm so excited <laughs> to talk to you about this, but I think so much um, of sport history still focuses on college and professional sports, but in many sports and football is definitely a great example. The vast majority of athletes are kids. Football is probably something like 95% of players are, are age 18 or younger. And that's because only a tiny number go on to play tackle football at the college level, let alone the NFL level. And there aren't really, you know, lots of amateur leagues for adults, you know, who are in their forties or fifties playing tackle football. So this is really a kid's sport. And so I felt like this is really important if we want to understand the history of football, to understand the history of youth football, particularly. And there's different levels of youth football even, trying to understand how did high school football develop differently from Pop Warner or the sort of like younger elementary and middle school age football. So I thought that was another important aspect of the book was just to try to tell the story of why did kids even start playing football, what happened at different ages, and how did that change over time? I think that's such an important distinction to make is thinking about how age impacts perceptions of the sport or how youth engage with the sport. And really, I think that's a, a really important and fascinating contribution that your book makes too, is not just understanding this as a, in a general um, book that looks at football in the lives of youth, but also looks at it um, across different age markers too. Um, so 
also thinking about the the role of boys um, in boyhood, which plays a really uh, strong role in your book. And for me, this is also very much a story about boyhood and how it's socially and culturally constructed, particularly in the U.S. context. What does this book tell us about age, race, gender, and national identity? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, well, starting with age, something that surprised me was I ended up feeling a lot of the book ended up being about adult values. <laughs> it's like, what are the adults thinking and how is that getting sort of projected onto kids? Um, and I think a lot of the adult values have to do with those other things you asked about in terms of gender, national identity, but um, the, the decision-making was the adults, but the experience of the sport was the kids. Um, another thing I think I learned about age through writing this book is, and I think we certainly see this in many aspects of life as well, the conceptualization sometimes of children as young adults or becoming men. And that's a huge part of um, the narrative around football is like, this is a way to teach boys to become men. And often football players, even if they're age eight or nine would be called like young men or young man, they would be addressed as men, even though they were children and sort of expected to, to um, represent certain kinds of adult values, even though they were children. And I think that that tells us something really interesting about the category of age and how it actually sort of influences some of the values behind football. Um, in terms of race, that is a huge part of the story. And the changing demographics of youth football pretty much occur throughout the entire, uh, whatever it is, 100 plus year history of American style tackle football, um, starting with the earliest part of, of this history, which was sort of late 19th century, early 20th century, something I found really striking is that from the earliest days of football, there were these really interesting racialized tensions that developed between the sort of quote unquote civilized values of football and the sort of quote, quote unquote brutish aspects of the sport. And what I mean by that is that football was promoted as teaching quote unquote civilized values, which were really inflected with very specific white Anglo-Saxon Protestant ethics of, you know, we're teaching discipline and, and grit and, and other kinds of values. And that was considered the civilizing impact of football. And then it was also considered a pretty brutal, violent sport, both then and now. And the racialized nature of this meant that based on the, the racial identity of who's playing different ones of those values sort of carried greater force. So as an example of that, um, it was often seen that football was a great sport to teach um, elite, mostly white men at Ivy League schools because they were going to be dominant in the military and business and they sort of needed to quote unquote be toughened up according to those racial racialized narratives. They actually benefited according to that narrative from the aggression of the sport or the perceived violence or brutality of the sport. On the other hand, another important group of football athletes, including youth football athletes in the early 20th century were Native American students. And part of that history that I explored was um, at Carlisle Indian School, which was a school for Native American students, where a lot of the history unfortunately has become overshadowed by the white coach, Pop Warner. We actually have a whole football league in the United States, Pop Warner Football League named after the white coach, but the players were all Native Americans. And it was considered great to have football at a Native American school to quote unquote, civilize the Native American students. So the Native American students were seen as needing discipline through football. Whereas in many ways, the white students were seen as needing toughening up, so to speak. 
And then if you follow the changing um, racial demographics of the sport over the century, uh, increasing numbers of Polish or Irish or Italian kind of mid 20th century. And then with the civil rights movement, increasing um, involvement of young black athletes. I think you see these sort of similar values kind of take different shapes based on racist and racial narratives and based on what ethnic group is perceived as needing what kinds of social benefits from the sport. That's a very long-winded answer to your question, but I think it's a huge part of the history of the sport. No, I mean, that's a that's a fantastic answer. And I think it's so important for us to really think about um, just getting down to the nuances and figuring out how boys experience the game in different ways and how when we look at different social locations, that also tells us a, a great deal about the, the history of, of boys' participation in, in youth football in the 20th century and even now into the 21st century. When reading your book, I was also struck by the ways that perceptions of risk shaped youth football participation. For example, from manufacturers to, who produced helmets uh, to coaches who assured parents and players that these risks were necessary for character development. How did risks, our ideas of risk and safety change and shift in regards to youth football in the 20, 20th century? And what do these um, contemporary 21st century conversations look like? Oh, that's such a great question. I think, especially in the early history, but all the way through now, something really complicated about this question is at sometimes risk was seen as a good thing. Like it was actually good to expose boys to some level of risk. Again, this idea of toughening them up or preparing them for adulthood, preparing them specifically for manhood. So a really interesting thing in terms of perception of risk that I think changed over the decades is, well, how much risk is good versus bad? Like when does it become a quote unquote healthy risk that's like teaching boys a certain kind of life experience versus when does it become an unhealthy risk that places them you know, at in harm's way or potential for a negative long-term health outcome. And then also the nature of the actual physical risk of greatest concern changed over time too. So just to give an example of that, um, at mid 20th century, there started to be increasing numbers of prepubescent boys, meaning under age 12, playing uh, football. And pediatricians at that time weren't so worried about brain injuries the way we are now. Their big focus at that time was much mo more the bone and joint injuries. And specifically, they were worried that if you got injured before you went through puberty, you might not develop properly. Your, your, your bones were still growing. Maybe if you had a, a severe broken bone or other kind of bone or joint injury, it would harm your sort of physical growth and physical development. So the pediatricians recommended against football in the 1950s for kids under 12. And that was much more specific to the bone and joint injury concern. They didn't actually even mention concussion in their specific policy recommendation in that decade. Then a big change that happened in football was the introduction of plastic football helmets. And that introduced a, a new kind of risk associated with players using their heads as weapons that unfortunately led to some really catastrophic injuries such as uh, paralysis or severe brain injury. And so that became a big focus of concern. But again, it wasn't the, the same concern we have now about brain injuries that might have more subtle symptoms like headaches, which is a big part of what we worry now. Then it was you know, the catastrophic injury that was the big fear, the, the fear of paralysis or the fear of um, hemorrhaging or other kinds of, uh, of major injuries. So that led to banning spearing, which 
unfortunately led to a reduction in catastrophic injuries. And then sort of bringing us to the late 20th and into the 21st century, I think we see a big shift where the, the reduction of those sort of immediate catastrophic injuries, I mean, they still exist in football, so it's not to say those injuries are totally gone, but they're, they're less common now. And combined with, I think, changing social ideas about gender, about race, other kinds of social contexts, I think combined to bring us to the conversation we're having today, which is not so much about the big catastrophic brain injury as it is about the repetitive brain injuries over time that could add up to cumulative long-term chronic trauma. And I think that's different. I think earlier the, the risk was much more about that acute, immediate, big injury. And now I think we've shifted our perception to be much more focused on the, the sort of smaller injuries adding up over time and what does that mean for your long-term health. So that's kind of a whirlwind tour and there's definitely more sort of nuances, but I think those are some of the, the big trajectories or trends I've seen in terms of how that's changed over time. Exactly. And I found it really fascinating the way that you incorporate discussions of consumer culture in there too, like thinking about how manufacturers are, are also kind of shaping these ideas around risk and injury. I think it's important for historians of sport and historians of childhood and youth to really think about not just like the player, not just the coach, but also the objects of these sporting cultures that also kind of shape the way that uh, youth and, and children participated in sport and sort of the, the ideologies around that. So you've, you've written this, this really incredible, fascinating book around public health and youth football and debates and shifting debates um, in the, the 20th century. So uh, looking, at, looking forward, what future research is needed to further bridge the fields of public health, childhood, and sports? Oh gosh, what future research is it needed? <laughs> I want it all. <laughs> I love it. I think some, some of the big categories of research I would love to see is some more um, look at what we sometimes call in public health a life course approach, which does mean uh, people's health over time. Because I think even though now we are seeing the shift as we just discussed of greater interest in long-term and chronic injury, I think a lot of focus still remains on that acute immediate injury that sort of directly impacts a player while they're playing. So I would love to see more historical research that looks at what happens to athletes over time, both their youth experience of the sport, their experience after you know they finish playing that sport or in retirement or when they play different sports throughout their life. And what does that mean for health over time and how has that changed over time? So I think seeing more, more work that took a life course approach could really interestingly bridge public health and, and childhood and sports history. Um, I also think a lot of research on the history of public health and sports still focuses a lot on kind of the, the individual lifestyle aspect of sports. Like what does this do for your individual health and perceptions of that over time? And we certainly see that in terms of physical education. Like what do you need to learn as an individual to be a healthy person over time? And that's definitely important, but I think the field of public health is, is even bigger than that. So I would love to see a sort of fuller range of public health practices, and that would include epidemiological data, that would include public health uh, policy making, uh, that would include, um, well, what we see now with COVID-19, which is like the police powers of public health, when might you have to stop uh, sports for 
an infectious disease, for example, or other kinds of reasons. So there's a lot of other aspects of public health that I think could get incorporated uh, into this history. Um, and of course, that then inevitably does bring me to, to COVID-19, since we are talking about this in the context of COVID-19. And I think that's something that could be placed in much richer um, historical context too, is well, how sports contributed to infectious disease transmission. And that's not just among athletes, that's also among you know, coaching staff, and that's among the surrounding communities and among the staff that work at arenas, the, the whole sort of um, web of people who are affiliated with sports are directly impacted by certain health issues. <laughs> a respiratory pandemic is a great example. And I would love to see that kind of thing placed in, in greater historical context. Because I would definitely say, I think one of the features of our response to the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States, at least, uh, when it comes to sports is the failure to prioritize public health. Like public health has not been the top priority driving a lot of decisions. And that I think could be placed in historical context too. Like what are the values that we have in terms of sports and how does that inform the relationship between sports and public health? How does that particularly affect kids, for example, or other specific populations? I think that would be a really rich area of research. And this is definitely not to say to make it all about COVID-19, but I think COVID-19 is a great reminder that the public health of impact of sports is about athletes, but it goes well beyond athletes to entire communities as well. And I would love to see more research take that sort of population level or community level approach. Exactly. I think it's, I'm, and I'm really glad that you, you mentioned that because I think it's such an important conversation to be had. It's really thinking about you know, looking at these historical, going back and looking at these historical foundations, but really thinking about the impact and also the future, like what happens after COVID-19, whenever that is, but also thinking about access to, to, to youth sports, like there's been a decline in like who is able to access youth sports, um, thinking about the decline of girls participating in youth sports, um, thinking about the impact of um, on parks and recreation centers who are already dealing with a very struggling budget. Um, but I'm, I'm really curious to see, you know, thinking forward and seeing what other kinds of research um, can, can happen around this subject. But I, I think there's so much to be said around public health, childhood and sports. There's so much future research that is needed um, that bridges these fields. And I'm so excited that your book is out there um, that is making such an important intervention. And I look forward to many more conversations with you about this. I sure look forward to that too. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Thank you, Kathleen.